Now, as we turn our minds and hearts to the scriptures, you can turn with me to the book of Proverbs in chapter 10. It's Proverbs in chapter 10. And as you turn there, would you pray with me? Our God, we are humbled before your word. It is amazing to us that a God who has created all things would then speak into that creation and give us all that you've given. Help us then to hear your word and to believe. Would you use your holy scripture to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ so that we might bring you praise. Guide us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We have just a few verses this morning. This is Proverbs chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 3 and just read these three verses. This is Proverbs 10, starting in verse 3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. This is God's word. So this morning is a bit of a departure for us. If you're here with us from week to week, you know that we've been reading through and talking through the book of Mark. We're taking a brief pause from Mark. We do that every couple of months or so to look back to the Old Testament. This morning we're in what's called wisdom literature here in the Proverbs because we want as best we can to hear the whole counsel of God. So this is for a bit of balance here for us. And as we do this, as we talk about these three verses, I want us to keep a few things in mind. One is that we know that salvation is through Christ alone, full stop. There is nothing in any of our works that can ever or will ever add to our own righteousness. We are fully dependent upon God for salvation. It is his work, not ours. So, Jesus then says to us, I alone am the Savior. Now follow me. That's the reason why we call Jesus Savior and Lord. Both of those things are important to keep together, that Jesus is Savior, that he's the one, the only one that can take away sin as the perfect, spotless lamb. And so he takes away that sin for all who believe he is the Savior and he's Lord, which means then that we're to follow him. So for the Christian, as we look through this book of wisdom, we don't ask the question, how can I earn favor with God? That favor already is upon us in Jesus. We know that we are already redeemed. The question then for the Christian is, how can I follow after God? 
And the answer to that in the scripture is what we call holiness. In Mark, it's described as discipleship, and in the book of Proverbs, it's described as wisdom. And this wisdom really, 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 that's not enough reallys, matters for us. Let me tell you why. If we look back just one chapter in Proverbs 9, there are two women who are calling to us. Not actual women. These are personifications of wisdom and folly or foolishness. So in Proverbs chapter 9, here's a few verses on wisdom. In verse 1, we start like this. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars, she slaughtered her beast, she has mixed her wine, and she has set her table, and she has sent out young women to call from the highest places on the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread, drink of the wine I have mixed, leave your simple ways, and live and walk in the way of insight. When Proverbs talks about simple people, you remember, if you were here and we've talked about Proverbs before, a simple person, this is not an issue of intelligence, this is not smart and not smart people. When we talk about simpleness, this is a lack of morality. And wisdom is calling us out of that into a way that is better, a way that is Good, a way that is here, leave your simple ways and live. This is really the way of life for us. So we've used the definition of wisdom that wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. I didn't write that, but I think it's a good fitting description. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. It brings us life. It fills up our cup, not drains it. Now, that's the woman wisdom. And you'll notice a few verses later, there's a woman folly who sounds very similar, but is drastically different. Verse 13, the woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he doesn't know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. There's the contrast, that wisdom, this woman wisdom, is leading to a way of life and the woman folly is leading down the path of death. But both of them are calling to us. It says in this text that the woman folly is loud and seductive, though. I like those two things together because that's really fitting. It reminds me of a carnival worker. You know, the ones that, what do they call that, the barker? Is that the right thing? The guy with the top hat? It, do they even have those anymore? Um, I remember some old carnivals, there'd be a, usually a guy swinging around a cane. Come on in here. It's usually something cheap. 50 cents, a dollar, one ticket. Come on in and see whatever it is. And he's really snazzy and he's really loud. And he's calling to us. That's the way 
folly is, and I don't think this is any surprise to any of us. I don't need to give you examples of what that looks like because we know what it looks like when folly calls. And we want and we need to pause here for a moment and give our attention to what Proverbs is telling us or else folly with her loud and seductive call will slowly pour down the stolen water into our throats and it will poison our souls. So this really matters for us. Now as we look at these three verses, two things that we're really asking. One, what is it telling us? And two, why does it matter? Pretty simple questions. What is it telling us and why does it matter? So as we look, we're applying wisdom to these three verses here. What is it telling us? We know that these three verses are primarily about work. And before we talk about that, we have to guard against some misunderstandings, at least potential misunderstandings in this. Because look in verse 3. It says, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. And my first thought is, wait, wait, wait. But there are many righteous people who go hungry. And so sometimes we think, if I'm just righteous or if I'm just good, there will never be an instance of hunger. Or the flip of that, if I am hungry, if I am in a circumstance in which things are skinnier, tighter, the belt is cinched closer, then I must not be righteous. Something in my life must be wrong. And that is not always the case, at least not in the scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, you'll recognize this uh, because Jesus quotes this when he himself is hungry in 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, um, the message to God's people as they're on the edge of the promised land. They're now a wandering people. So this is Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. The whole commandment that I commanded you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Here's the verse we want. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that, here's the reason, so that he, the Lord, might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In essence, here's what's going on here. The Lord is saying sometimes there is purpose in hunger. That at least in this occasion, it was a good discipline for them. He did not let them waste away in their hunger, but it was a reminder of the value and necessity of the Lord who is worth more than even food itself. So we shouldn't grow slack or weary or tired of asking the Lord to provide. In fact, we do that every Sunday, as the Lord taught us. You know that line, give us this day our daily bread. Sometimes I forget to ask that because my daily bread is provided for the next about two months if I were to clean out the whole pantry. But if you have ever lived very snugly and your daily bread, you're not sure where it's going to come from, that can be very scary. 
And this is telling us then, not that you will never have moments of hunger, because Proverbs doesn't give us absolutes like that. It's reminding us of principles of things that are generally true. So Proverbs here is saying, the Lord is faithful to provide. And he is more trustworthy than your 401k, than your insurance. He is more trustworthy than your pocketbook or your pantry. He will not let you in the whole of things, go hungry. Another misunderstanding that we have to be careful of comes in verse 4. Solomon writes, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. This is generally true. We know the principle is that work generally pays off. However, you know, if I look out, I can see that there are some who are very rich without work in a single day. And there are some who work, 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 and can only barely pay the rent. We know that's the reality. We can see that example in Exodus. So back when God's people were slaves in Egypt, that the richest one in the land was Pharaoh. And how do you get to be Pharaoh except that your dad is Pharaoh? You don't have to work a day in your life, and you're the richest man in the land. And in contrast, the Hebrews, the Lord's people, are working, slaving every day, making bricks out of straw, which sounds hard, by the way. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Probably some mud is involved, but a lot of hard work. And then Pharaoh accuses them of being lazy. So we should be careful of presuming that if a person is needy, that that person is lazy. Some needy people are lazy. Many are not. In fact, some of the hardest workers that I personally know are poor. That's the reason why Paul in 1 Thessalonians reminds us, he says, warn the idle person, and in the same breath he says, help the weak person. Because the idle person and the weak person are not necessarily the same. So there we go. There's a few misunderstandings that I want to guard us against before we move on. But as we look at these three verses, we can generally understand what Solomon's talking about. We don't need fancy books to read it. We can get uh, that Solomon's point here is to talk about work, specifically about the contrasting outcomes of work. So he talks about the slack hand, like this, I guess. I don't know what a slack hand exactly looks like, and and the diligent hand, or the, the one who sleeps in harvest, or in the one who gathers in summer. And the outcome of those is that there's a danger in laziness and there is value in work. There you go, revolutionary, right? There's danger in laziness, but value in work. Let's unpack that a little bit because when he's talking about the diligent hand or the one who works, we need some clarity in that. And I'll give us four things, I'll be brief about this, four things then specifically about work. So when, the pro, when Solomon is talking about the one who is diligent or the worker, what he means, first of all, for point one, if, you, if you're a point person, I know I don't often do that. Point one, work is not just your vocation, your career, your job, the way you make money. You have work even if you don't have a job. So if you're retired, you still work. 
And if you're young and under child labor laws, you still work. If you're jobless, you still work. Work is not something you go and just do in the office and then you come home and you stop working. Work is whatever we are doing and making of our day. So there's the first one. Work is not just your vocation. The second one is work is not just what is commonly considered important. So generally we divide work up into the color of your collar. There's blue collar and there's white collar. And usually the white collar people are more important and the blue collar people are kind of lower on the totem pole. And maybe there's some variance in skill or pay grade or other things, but there is not variance in importance. The work of washing dishes, vitally important. Because I don't want the diseases that I get. Not from one dirty dish. Our house isn't that messy. But if dishes were never washed, can you imagine a world like that? Or the work of pulling weeds, vitally important. Or the work of changing diapers, vitally important. We know then that the factory worker and the farmer matters that the hospital worker and the courtroom worker matters, that the songwriters matter, that the painters matter, that the mamas and daddies matter. So when we're talking about work, it's not just the, quote, important work. Three, work is not just being active. I'm going to use Paul for this. Uh, because he makes the point very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, just a couple verses here. Paul talks several verses a long time against idleness, but here are these words. He says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. So he writes to the church in Thessalonica this, Even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, don't let him eat. Yikes. If anyone is not willing to work, don't let him eat. Now he goes on to say this, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. So you might hear him say, if anyone's not willing to work, he shouldn't eat. And by that, he must mean the people who are sitting on their couch eating potato chips and playing video games all day, every day only, and never even pausing for a bathroom break. But that's not what he means. He says, some among you are idle and you're busybodies, meaning you're active a lot. You're just active in messing around in other people's business. I know, it hurts me too. <laughs> uh, so there's the third thing. Work is not just being active, because we can be active and still not be working. Last one, fourth. This is, this is the last one for us. Work is not primarily about the amount done. So if I do more of it, it is not necessarily better. We should not clap or praise workaholics. That is not good. 
A workaholic does not know when to pause, when to sleep, when to rest. We know in this text, Solomon talks about the one who sleeps in harvest. It's talking about gathering in summer. The farmers know this. There is a timing for everything. And there are seasons of hard work, and there are seasons where you just have to watch. Right, farmers? Can I at least get a head nod? That's a, it's not because you're not working. There's a moment of pause. So when Solomon's saying work is important, he's not saying work all the time. What's really contrasted here is not lots of work and little work, but it's two different kinds of work. It's good work versus bad work. And the bad work can be manifested as busybodies. The bad work can be manifested as workaholism. Or the bad work can be manifested as laziness. Because it's really hard work to be lazy. You've got to work real hard to be really good at being lazy. And I know we live in the Midwest, and people generally, we're kind of known as being like salt-of-the-earth people. We're kind of hardworking. In fact, the movies even depict us that way in the Midwest. We're, we're good old hardworking folks. And that generally seems to be true. And yet, we need this reminder about laziness because it's all over the Proverbs warning us against what, they, what the Proverbs calls the sluggard. So three brief characteristics then of the sluggard. The first is that the sluggard constantly postpones. The sluggard constantly postpones. Proverbs chapter 6 says this, six, starting in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and she gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard is constantly postponing what needs to be done because there's no chief, there's no super, there's no boss to really poke you all the time. And so this sluggard is not starting of his own volition. There's, there's no accountability there. And you can get away with things, so the sluggard tries. And there's this line, a little sleep, a little slumber, just a little bit, and that seems harmless. One more Netflix episode, one more swipe through Facebook, one more tap of the snooze alarm, and I'm not criticizing that every time, but if we do that every time, it will lead us down a dangerous path. One writer about this said this. He said, all the sluggard here asks is for a little bit of respite, just a little, a little, a little. He doesn't commit himself to a refusal, but he deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. By inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. The sluggard constantly postpones. Secondly, the sluggard constantly blames. Proverbs 26, starting in verse 13. I love this line. 
26 and 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and it wears him out to even bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. You can hear in that line about the lion that there can be an excuse for anything. I can't go out and work because there's a lion in the streets. And that's purposefully silly because we can find a reason or an excuse for anything. And it does not matter to the sluggard how silly it is. It's just a way to blame the lack of work. Or I'm too tired to do that. Or in the last verse here, I know better than you do. The sluggard constantly blames, but then this last one really gets at me. It aches my heart and it actually touches me in a soft uh, spot personally. Proverbs 21, the third thing, last thing here about a sluggard is that the sluggard constantly craves. Let's see what I mean by that. Proverbs 21, uh, verse 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous one gives and does not hold back. What the writer is saying here is that, in essence, what's killing the sluggard is what's happening internally. It's his desire that's killing him. What he wants, really, is some aspect of what TV ads are promising, some aspect of rest or ease or comfort, some aspect of the good life with some elements of boats, maybe, or fun, or whatever version of, of that is for you, some element of, of living in a perpetual vacation or on a perpetual weekend. And the sad thing is, and I think true thing is, that when the sluggard wants this, that desire is perpetually unfulfilled. He longs for it and longs for it and never gets it. So the sluggard then spends his life throwing coins into a wishing well forever wanting, wishing, and never getting. How sad is that? In contrast, it says here, the righteous person is so fulfilled that he has excess, that he's giving and giving because he's got all that he could want, abundance and even more, not just of possessions of things, but of his own cravings. So this really gets us down to the second question that we asked at the beginning. Why does all this matter? All this discussion about bad and good work, why does it matter? And the answer, to answer that question, we have to really talk about the purpose of work. And to do that, we won't read it just for the sake of time, but I'll summarize for us. Well, you'll remember the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've even memorized those as a kid. Maybe there was a song or something, but I always get them kind of out of order. So if you ask me to quote the Ten Commandments, I'll mix them all up. But number four, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. Number four is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that is a day in which we're supposed to pause 
and rest. But what most people miss or forget, or it's easy to kind of gloss over, is the rest of that fourth commandment is actually a command to work. He says, for six days you shall labor. That most of our week, in fact, most of our lives is to be work. Now, why? In that commandment, it says the reason why this is the case. That six days you have work, and we're not going to be picky or legalistic about the numbers of the days, but most of life is to be work, and then one day is to be pause and rest. Why? Because the Lord God did it that way himself that he worked six days of creation, and then he paused to rest. Now, have you ever wondered, then, why did God rest? It sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? I mean, he's God. Come on. You know, doesn't he have lots of muscle on lots of things? We know, I mean, it's silly to imagine God needing to rest like we do because we get tired. God did not rest on the seventh day of creation because he got tired. God did not rest on the seventh day because he was annoyed or bothered by the work that he was doing. He was just trying to get to the weekend, so he invented a weekend to be, to be there. And it wasn't just because he was finished. There's more to it than that. God rested on the seventh day because he wanted to enjoy and appreciate all that he had done. You remember the lines that it was the, the sixth day and, and it was good. And then when we, it was this day and it was good. It was evening, it was morning and, and, and all those lines. And we get to the sixth day and it was, he looks and he goes, ah, this is, this is very good. That that's the point of his work, to actually be satisfied in all that's done. In six days, he's pulling together order and beauty in all of creation. And then on the seventh, he blessed it, he made it holy, and he was completely satisfied. That's rest. So this is also true on some level for us because we're made in God's image that it's true of us that we are to enjoy the fruit of God's work. That's part of our purpose. That we're to en enjoy God himself and that we're even to enjoy the fruit of our own work in God. And we know what this looks like. I'll give you a brief example. You probably have your own. We have chickens now. I know many of you know that. I'm very excited about it. They don't do anything but move around and cause trouble at this point. No eggs or anything. It'll be a while before we get there. Caroline's helping us uh, kind of move along and figure out how to do this. But uh, a couple of weekends ago, uh, Laura and I decided they cannot fit in the box in our garage anymore because they're getting too big, so they need to be moved out to the coop, which is not ready. So... We, have to, we didn't have to build it completely, but we did have to do a lot of work, putting in posts and stakes and fence around and cutting holes in the sides of things and making sure all the holes are sealed up so that raccoons don't get in and I don't show up one morning with a dead chicken in the hen house and such. It was a lot of work. I even got a couple of blisters on my hand, which I felt good about as a pastor because most of my work happens up in my brain, but it was nice to get out and use my hands, and at the end of it, so Laura and I are both out there working together. Eliza's sitting in her, in her little carrier there, kind of watching and crying every so often. And I sat then at the end of that time and looked at it, and I thought, that's good. 
it's good. It felt good, too. Not because I did it all right. I'm sure I made plenty of mistakes and I'm gonna have to fix them because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm still learning on this process, but we know what it looks like, don't we? On some level. Now, maybe not all of our work this looks this way, but at least some of our work, that the point of it is that there's fruit at the end to be enjoyed. That's the point of work, is that at the end of it, we step back and bathe in it. Now, this is eternally true, which means this aspect of work is true for us now. It is also true for us later, even after death, which I know is the weird one for some people. We know that the life of a Christian, in part, is to enjoy the work of God, all that God is and all that God does. And that happens, that continues even into what we call heaven. And some people at this point might go, wait a minute, Nathan, are you telling us that we're going to work in heaven? Because I thought heaven was mostly going to be harps and pillows and clouds and some sort of singing, and it's going to be some sort of like endless vacation. That's not true to the scripture. In fact, we don't want that to be true anyway. Have you ever gone on one of those really cushy vacations where and, and someone else does all the work for you and you sit back and they, they give you a nice little glass of water and what can I get for you and all of that? And some of that's really great for a day. And then after a couple of days, don't you get a little bit antsy? Like, I want to do something. I want to read something. I want to build something. I want to I I make something. I want to invent something. I want to catch something. I want to I do do something, anything, it doesn't matter. You want to go on a walk? Let's look for things, you know? Now, it might not be my regular work day. It's a different kind of work, but it's still work. And in the new heavens and the new earth, when we are with God in the fullness of redeemed creation, it will look much more like creation, but without all the effects of the fall and the curse. So at creation, he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, in essence, work and enjoy it all. What we're hesitant about when we go, oh no, am I going to have to work in heaven? The reason why we pause about that is because work in our minds is bound up with what we know of it now, that our work is bound up with the curse and the fall and all that comes with it. What's bound up there is the thorns and the thistles of work the pain and the backaches of work, the ulcers and stress of work, the aging of work, the sting of work, the endless cycles of work, and all of that will be gone. The curse is done away with, but what is left is God's good creation, which includes good work. when all the world's redeemed and our work exists without pain, which I have no category for in my brain because every time I work, it involves pain, but when I do productive work without pain, then I can step back and enjoy the fruit of that and say, God, you are good. Not only for making this 
but forgiving us for doing it all this way. That we would enjoy all that he's given and all that he is. That's good work. For now, Proverbs and wisdom gives us a warning. A warning to that tendency to be a sluggard, to kind of take too many naps that we wouldn't get stuck in unfulfilled cravings. The warning is don't let the laziness or the temptation to a slack hand bring you to miss the gift of work from God. Don't let it bring you to miss the richness of harvest. Don't let it bring you to miss the goodness of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, first of all, thank you for being a very wise God. If I were to design creation the way that I think it ought to go, I would not do it this way. But as I pause and think about the way you've done things, ah, it's really good and wise. Oh, I see now your wisdom in all of this. Help us to be good workers to bask then in the riches of the goodness that you've given us in the fruit of our work and to see you as a good God. We give you all thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.